If you'll join me in the book of Romans, our sermon text this morning is impossibly long. I'll say that right from the get-go. It's chapter 15, verse 22 through chapter 16, verse 23. I decided to do it this way, to put the end of chapter 15 and most of chapter 16 into one sermon. The organizing focus of this sermon is going to be two appeal statements, two places where Paul says, I appeal, notice them as I read, one in 15 verse 30 and then in 16 verse 17. By next Sunday we'll have gotten through Romans. Of course, the greater consideration is whether Romans has gotten through us. But let's look at the text now. Chapter 15 verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, he means to the Roman Christians, particularly to Rome. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions he mentioned earlier, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, where Alex and Amy Galloway, we just prayed for, are, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. There'd been a famine, that's the background. Paul is taking a contribution from actually very impoverished churches themselves down to Judea, verse 27. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, They ought also to be of service to them, the Jews, in material blessings, these saints in Jerusalem who were in need. Verse 28, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers. Here's our first of two appeal statements we'll focus on. Chapter 15, verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who was approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Astrobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. This is before he's got caught up in the pool. I'm just kidding. It's an inside joke. Those who appreciate Greek mythology enjoy it. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. 
Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who were with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Neurus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who were with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, second appeal statement there in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosispater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, he was Paul's scribe, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. This is why you go to seminary, so you can learn to read all those names. What you have in the list uh, are people from every aspect of, of uh, society, Greco-Roman society. People at uh, high parts of government, you have men, you have women, you have the poor, the barely getting by, you have those with resources, etc., and so on. They're all there. Now, I'm not trying to shortchange our time in Romans. I'm not trying to skip anything. We do in our church believe, I believe, uh, that all Scripture is profitable for instruction. But as the preacher, I have to make some decisions. I have to make decisions about how many sermons are in a series. And, and so I've made a decision to take this in a big block and to focus us on these two appeal statements, as I signaled to you in chapter 15, verse 30, chapter 16, verse 17. The rest of this is not garnish. We'll pick some things here and there. But we know Romans was a personal letter. And in its wind down here, we see Paul attending to more personal matters. And we get these names of people that, that we don't know except for Romans and, and really don't know much about them even here. But this makes this an easy section to overlook. This part of Romans, it's kind of like reading the acknowledgments in a book. Uh, most readers don't read that. They don't read the stuff in the appendices. They read the chapters. But we're highlighting two appeals, the appeal in 1530 and the appeal in 1617, and I'll, and I'll put these appeals, these I appeal to you brothers statements, in terms of the appeal to watch with, that's chapter 15 verse 30, and the appeal to watch out, that's chapter 16 verse 17. The appeal to watch with and the appeal to watch out, that's our time in this passage. First, the appeal to watch with, which is another way of saying, pray for me, pray, pray with me, and pray for me. Look again, chapter 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And reading that in verse 30, look back up again at verse 24 in chapter 15, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while, that help by which he means financial aid. Support me, pray for me, 
support me, the help he's asking for in verse 24, the same kind of help referenced down in verse 26, provided to impoverished Judeans, financial help. Paul never demands this, but he does put it in the category of believer responsibilities, and he asks for help in prayer also. He made an appeal. Help me by praying for me. Help me by supporting me. Strive with me is the language he put this in. Meaning both prayer and support require some effort. I don't know about you, prayer doesn't come easily to me. You would think as a, as a preacher, as one who makes his, his living uh, from the gospel as it's phrased by Paul elsewhere, uh, that prayer would just come naturally to me, but it doesn't. It is something I have to work at. And, and while many of us are, are, are even gifted in generosity, uh, for a lot of us, uh, generosity requires an, an effort. So strive with me these ways, he's saying in chapter 15. He wants them generous. He wants them alert. This is the way Christians engage with the world, through generosity and through a kind of wakefulness, a watchfulness that prayer is. Prayer is watchfulness, awake and alert to what God is doing. And note that the appeal here comes from one who encountered a lot of opposition, and he didn't encounter it just outside the church. He also encountered it from inside the church, which is why verse 30 adds, pray that I am accepted by these Christians in Judea. Not just the unbelievers, but pray that the, the people inside the church also receive me. But praying, when we call for it, it's the strongest signal you can send that you're taking nothing for granted. Now, we can often talk about, I've been praying for you and praying for this and I'll pray for that. And we, we especially in Southern culture, we sort of just uh, put this on. Uh, but in reality, when you call for prayer, you're sending a signal that, that you're taking nothing for granted. You recognize that you need and want the Lord's help, personally, His help. The gospel advances. Paul's talking about that all through chapter 15, how the gospel has advanced in, in, in Roman culture and how the gospel continues to advance through his ministry. And the gospel often advances through opposition. We know this. Opposition makes us resilient. You know, we sometimes think uh, if God is allowing some sort of opposition in my life, it, he must be against me. No, it, it, it means he's developing us. He's developing the muscle of, of, of resiliency and endurance. Opposition makes us resilient. Acceptance refreshes. So he says down in verse 32 of chapter 15, by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. He's looking for that. But the prayers requested here were for deliverance from opposition. He says it in verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be accepted to the saints. Another way of saying, and that I be delivered from, from ingratitude or, for, or, or from them rejecting me for, for some specious reason that doesn't really matter. Deliverance and acceptance. But prayers for deliverance have deep roots biblically deep roots. Deliverance, if you put prayers uh, for deliverance uh, in, in context biblically, it's, that's the cry of the slave in Egypt, the exile in Babylon, the man on the cross. 
the apostles in the crosshairs, all these cries to God for deliverance. And yet, when you chart deliverance prayers through biblical history, what do you find? It was often delayed. Even for hundreds of years, in some cases, with much to endure in the meantime. How did we endure? What are we to be known by in the meantime? Prayerfulness. It's not what we give ourselves to when we've tried everything else. And nor is it that God is crowdsourcing, you know. He's trying to assemble all these people to pray. The more people you get to pray for you, the more inclined God is to act. It's that God wants us all in on the cause and advance of the gospel. He wants us to keep turning ourselves over to what is larger than we are. And that's what you're doing when you're praying these prayers Paul asked to be prayed. The people listed in chapter 16, all these names, they're alongside Paul. They're men and women who each and all gave themselves to the Lord fully. As you're looking at the names here in chapter 16, just letting your eye scroll the page there, what they all have in common was not just being friends or associates of Paul. These were all themselves living sacrifices. You remember the imagery back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? This is chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living slain thing. It's a paradoxical image. It's not zombie-ish. That's creepy. It's, it's, the, it's the idea of the free will offering. Everything I have is God's. I recognize it. And so what I'm placing on the altar myself in this case is because if everything I have is from God, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And so I give my all. Chapter 12, verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, good, acceptable, and perfect. And we talked about this back in chapter 12. What is good, acceptable, and perfect is always going to resolve, resolve and revolve around who Christ is and what he's done. Here in chapter 16, we get altered names. There's two uses of the word altar. One is spelled A-L-T-A-R, and that's the altar of sacrifice. That's where you place that free will offering that Romans 12 is thinking back to. And then there's A-L-T-E-R, where you alter a name to protect the identity of someone. This is altar with an A. As you're looking at these names in chapter 16, you've got men and women who've squared up with the reality As I just said, that everything they had was the Lord's. And if everything we have from God through Jesus comes to us by grace, then there is nothing God cannot ask of us. And so he says of uh, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, chapter 16, verse 3, they risk their necks for my life. How do you risk your neck? Well, you have to recognize that what you have is God's, including your life, and therefore He can ask anything of me if everything I have is from grace. Uh, Look down at uh, verse 13. Just pick one out. Rufus, chosen the Lord. Also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. We risk our necks. We, We expand our families. 
In view of God's mercies accomplished for us by Jesus, you and I, we, all of us, see ourselves as having altered names, A-L-T-A-R-E-D. The appeal to watch with, as these did with and for Paul, these names in chapter 16, this is prayerfulness. And then we have the appeal to watch out as we get on down into chapter 16, verse 17. And if the appeal to watch with in chapter 15, verse 30 is about prayerfulness, the appeal to watch out, chapter 16, verse 17, is about vigilance. Look at it, verse 17 of chapter 16. I appeal to you, brothers, the second appeal statement. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. And these have names too. And in fact, some of them are named in Scripture. If you're curious, later you can go to 2 Timothy where he lists those guilty of this very reality. Watch out. He's saying there are going to be those who come behind me He said this more than one place in his letters. There's going to be those who come behind me and they cause division, they create obstacles because they make it about themselves fundamentally. They they make it about what they think and what they want and they deny the doctrine that he very carefully laid out here in the entire book of Romans and the practices that go with the doctrine. And the reason he says avoid them, did you note at the very end of verse 17, avoid them, which is set off by a semicolon in my my English standard version here, avoid them, which he doesn't say about the confused. He doesn't tell you to avoid the confused or to avoid the, the merely mistaken. Those might yet be helped. Nor does he say avoid them in the reference of permissible differences. We find it easy to avoid somebody that's on the other side of a permissible difference from us. Paul's not talking about the context of permissible differences. He says avoid them because the New Testament doesn't hold any hope for the people that Paul has in mind here. And this is a very serious thing to say. It's one thing to lose your faith. It's one thing to uh, believe and become a proponent of bad doctrine that is contrary to the doctrine that we're given in Scripture. It's quite another thing to try to win people to the same. It's quite another thing to try to get people to go there with you. You may have late heard about some high-profile apostasies. That's the word we use that it's a fancy word that just means somebody leaves their faith. And there's been of late some pastors and some worship leaders going public with leaving the faith. It's not new. And the Lord said that it would happen even by those who bore fruit for Him. There's a cluster of reasons why it happens. And and while I have empathy for those who struggle in believing and patience and kindness toward those who struggle in their faith, it's quite a different thing to take people with you into loss of faith. I don't have any empathy for that. Because those who end up doing that misrepresent the faith they once held and they do so purposefully and it's all about conforming to the to the moment to right now 
to lead others away from Christ puts you in a completely different category than just the confused or the mistaken or the people who've camped out on a minor issue and made it, and made it more major than they should. It, we're talking about uh, it, it's a, a different person is, is who he has in mind here in chapter 16 in this appeal in verse 17 to, to watch out for those who cause divisions. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not someone who says, I, I just don't think I believe this anymore. It's somebody who says, rather, I'm going to, not only do I believe this, you shouldn't either. And I'm going to try to convince you and compel you to to no longer believe this. He says in verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And there is a lot of spiritual naivete around And biblically considered, naive is actually a biblical category. It comes from wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the Psalms, Job. Naive is a kind of fool. In wisdom literature of the Old Testament, those books I just mentioned, you've got about four to six kinds of fool. They're they're sort of graded. And the naive is the most hopeful kind of fool because they, they end up being as open to folly as they are to wisdom. But if they remain naive, it means... More often than not, they go the direction of folly, though they actually know better. There's a lot of spiritual naivete around today. People who are tossed around because they don't have a center. There's no core convictions. There's nothing drilled down that's non-negotiable. They just go with whatever wind is, is blowing culturally A lot of people uh, today, you know, they believe this or that about that or the other, and and, and maybe it's it's not something their parents believe or their grandparents didn't believe that, but everybody around me now seems to believe this, and so I feel like I've got to go with the flow. You know, if everybody is changing their mind, then I'm going to change my mind too, regardless of where Scripture is on the subject. What we have in our churches are too many people who have not experienced that kind of spiritual formation that equips us to be resilient, to weather, and to thrive. The kind of spiritual formation that plants the roots deep. I mean, that's how vibrant faith flowers. But there seems to be a lot of dying on the vine now. And look, I I know a lot of people are down on evangelicalism now, and in some respects, we deserve it. I'll be the first to say our movement needs deep and abiding renewal. But if you want to hold up for me the worst example of a Christian and say, there you go, that's why I'm not a Christian anymore. That's why I'm not in this anymore. That's why the church has become something I've set aside. That's why I'm not uh, into my faith anymore. I'm willing to hear you out. But at some point, I'm going to ask you why you're making that the common denominator, hypocrisy and examples of unfaithfulness. Why is that more persuasive than so many more Christians who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who are seeking alignment between creed and conduct, and who are suffering faithfully because we found in the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ a a meaning for life that suffering doesn't take away? Many of us who are intellectually stimulated by biblical knowledge and understanding, so you can't say we're stupid, 
But even for all that, to point to all the positives, what I really want to know is why have you put your ultimate faith in someone other than Jesus? Jesus is not his followers. He loves his followers and he brings us to himself and he works with us and aren't we glad he does? Aren't we glad he's patient? But even those you look up to, even when their faithfulness is at its best, put your hope in one higher than them. I don't mean to imply we put no confidence in the church. I don't believe that. But men and women of the church can fail you. Great examples like the names we have here in chapter 16 and like many of you seated in the pews this morning, notwithstanding. Fine examples. But watch out with whom you align. Not everyone asking questions of the faith is just being honest. Hard questions we shouldn't shrink from, but many are disingenuous. Matthew Lee Anderson in his book, The End of Our Exploring, puts it this way. Listen to his words. Because the broader culture treats doubt as the apex of our intellectual experience, there are cultural incentives for those who embrace doubt. For young, culturally cosmopolitan evangelical Christians, the cultural rewards are all on the side of tossing out the truths we've inherited and starting again from the beginning. Trafficking in doubt draws a crowd, and anxious uncertainty strikes us as more authentic and courageous than firm conviction. It is bold to ask our questions and cowardly to retreat to the creed. You know, this week, regardless of what you think of these two individuals I'm about to mention, there's been something moving around the internet. It's an interview that Anderson Cooper of CNN did with Stephen Colbert, the comedian and late night talk show host. You ought to watch it. Again, regardless of what you think of those two individuals, you should watch it. Because what exactly happens in that moment is Anderson Cooper, who's just lost his mother, is quoting back to Stephen Colbert something he said about suffering and about how God's best gifts to us come in suffering. And Anderson Cooper says, through his own tears, do you really believe this? And Stephen Colbert says, yes. And then he gives one of the best explanations in the context of suffering that you will hear somebody give. What does he do? He retreats to the creed. But the retreat isn't a retreat, it's an advance. He's saying to Anderson Cooper in this moment, Anderson, you may not understand what I believe, but, but I, I'll tell you why I find meaning in it. He's a, he's a devoted Catholic. Stephen Colbert is. It, it's a good exercise to, to, to how gently and, and with humor, but also with creedal depth, a Christian handles somebody in great pain who needs to know the gospel, that there's hope. See, precisely what Paul is telling us here in chapter 16 to watch out for is those who think it's cowardly to retreat to the creed. And there is a way of retreating to the creed that is kind of cowardly. You know, well, when you do, you kind of pull on somebody, well, I don't know how to explain that to you, but, you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, you, you've got to be able to explain a little bit. You've got to be able to unpack why. And you'll find, I think you will find more often than not, if you can explain why, 
Yes, there's mystery in our faith and there's points at which I can't submerge any further than what I know and here's what I know. But if you can articulate some why, you'll have people walk with you and listen to you. See, what Paul's talking about here in verse 17, the reason he makes this appeal is because the other side of, of this kind of unbelief it causes divisions and, it, and it, it creates obstacles, but it, it's so seductive. The person losing their faith or redefining it to fit the spirit of the times, there's a lot of that going on. You can sell a lot of books and you will gain a lot of defenders because, again, cultural goodwill accrues to those embracing doubt. It is, it, it, in some respect, it is chic to be apostate. I'm not saying there's not anguish in that for those who've gone there. I, and a lot of painful loss. You won't find me mocking anyone in this vein. I just don't take a lot of the deconversions out there to be as honest intellectually and otherwise as the people in them want to make out. And it doesn't make you such a bad person to be seduced and deceived, but it does make you a fool. The naive person, I reiterate, is biblically considered a kind of fool. The most hopeful kind, as it turns out, because... There's still a near shot of wisdom. But this is why Paul says, look at verse 19. For your obedience is known to all. We'll talk more about that next week. So that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Not naive about evil. Innocent. Look at the verse. Naivete and innocence are not the same thing. Innocence is something you protect, while naive... Naivete is something you forsake. With your children, for instance, one of the job of parents, a basic job of, of Christian parenting. Protect your kids' innocence, but rid them of being naive. Help them understand what kind of world this really is. Don't shelter them off in a place where they are surprised by the sinfulness of people. Protect their innocence but help them lose their naivete. This is why, for instance, in the Old Testament book of Proverbs, just keeping it with wisdom literature, you've got Proverbs chapter 7, I think it is. You've got the father with his son. Text seems to indicate it's a young son. And the father is telling the son about going over to the window and looking out on the red light district and what he saw. Here comes this naive young man. Watch him, son. See the woman in purple who's come out to greet him? Notice they're having a conversation. Now he's just gone into her house. That's what we thought would happen. What's going on? He's talking to his son about this. Uh, and if you were to walk into the room and go, what, what are you doing? Uh, he shouldn't know what's happening down there. There is such a thing as age appropriateness. Absolutely. But the Proverbs also say that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. So Proverbs thereby commends both teaching and discipline that protects a child's innocence but exposes their naivete. And so the father in Proverbs 7, by pointing to the naivete of the young man on the street, the father is saying to his son in that chapter of Proverbs, son, you don't have to be like this guy. He's, he's going into a snare. He can't sustain what's about to, to follow from this act. And you know what, son? You'll want to go right there behind him. You'll want what he wants someday when you're walking down that street. But let me tell you why that's not the way. Though you live in a culture that for all the world will try to convince you it is. 
that that's where life is found. Your obedience is known to all, verse 19. I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. This is in the context of not buying into seductive ideology, seductive theology, which will often present itself as just being honest. I'm just asking questions, but in that can lurk a satanic echo. Did God really say? Does God really say? Does God really want you to, to, you know, everybody you know who's like this, they seem moralistic. You don't want to be moralistic, do you? Well, no, I don't want to be moralistic, but I do want to be moral. I I, I want to demonstrate an alignment between creed and conduct. It does matter the decisions I make and the choices. And Satan, you know, for his part, he knows he's toast. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that's why he wants to do so much damage in the here and now because in his defeat, which is assured at the cross, he's full of fury and malevolence and hatred for God's people. But here's the thing you need to understand about Satan. He never flies into a rage. He is cool. And he channels all that malice into a masquerade. It's seductive. And his best work is in redrawing the lines of right and wrong. Because look, when you start redrawing the lines of right and wrong, you never feel more right. The people who are the champions of redrawing the lines between right and wrong, calling good evil and evil good, they're people who are so full of self-righteousness. Just listen to them. They've been taken captive by an enemy that they can't name and don't understand, but he's, they're doing his will. You never feel better about yourself uh, when, and, until in this culture, you're recasting good and evil. You feel how subtle that is? How, how smooth? What are the people of God to do about it? Picket them? Boycott their places? I don't know that that's the best thing to do. I think the best thing to do is that we drill down into the core of our faith and practice. We come to understand what it means to really affirm biblical authority and to necessitate a a new birth experience in Jesus and to get into the mission of the gospel and the primacy of prayer and meditating on the Word of God and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves here, which is designed for us to edify one another, not pick each other apart. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's not a juxtaposition. It flows one from the other. Paul wishes us grace because the very best thing he himself received. You you realize what Paul was, a persecutor of the church. And now he's taking the church's provisions to the most impoverished Christians at great risk to himself. Why would you do that? You're either the greatest fool who's ever lived, or you once were. But in meeting Jesus, you came to discover his weakness is stronger than anyone's strength and his foolishness wiser than anyone's wisdom to take Paul's words in the very next chapter in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 1. In Christ, you have an altered name, altar with an A, the altar, 
the place where you gave and you still give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of Jesus. Which means this instruction, this passage, full of names, full of travel details, it makes sense to you. You rise to it. It's why it thrills you to think about God crushing the head of Satan. It thrills you that God has overcome and is overcoming your every resistance to him. To quote St. Tim McGraw, you like it, you love it, and you want some more of it, right? See, you make appeals to people with whom you, you have every confidence they'll follow through. Note the language, I appeal to you, I appeal to you. You beg people that you're trying to get off the schneid. You, you, you implore people that you don't have any confidence they're going to do it, but you appeal to people whom you have every confidence they'll follow through. Otherwise, you don't waste your effort. Last thing I'll say. Life is the longest thing you'll ever personally take part in. But life is too short to waste it on apathetic people. You don't make appeals to the apathetic or the indifferent. You make appeals to the obedient who yearn to be yet more so, who, for whom it, it, it thrills them to see Jesus high and lifted up, higher and more lifted up than any hypocrite, than any obstacle can reach or rise to eclipse our view of him. Let's pray. Lord, we are waiting for the church to rise, and we are waiting for Satan to be crushed, and the kingdoms of this world to belong to the Lord Jesus in earnest. Keep us from being deceived and seduced. The times are evil. Don't let us be naive as open to the call of folly as we are to the call of wisdom. Don't let us straddle like that. Plant us, root us, Lord Jesus, in your way and will so that what follows even on our worst days, even in our greatest pains, even in our most taxing confusions, is we want to follow you. And that we, when put to the, the grilling of the world, do you really believe that? We confess that we do, but we also offer an explanation. And it's more than an explanation Lord, in our case, that, that you would make it to where the life behind it uh, holds the seeds of the promise and that people can get to it. We, we have those seeds where they can get to them and they plant and germinate and grow in their own life. We want to see Jesus glorified in our times and through our church. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.